For B2B product leaders, the relationship with sales can be both challenging and rewarding. Both want to meet customer needs, but we're not always aligned on which customers, which needs, and how best to meet them. In this episode of Fearless Product Leadership, I asked five seasoned B2B product leaders a question that gets to the heart of many of these challenges, and that is, does your sales team sell features before they exist? Welcome to the Fearless Product Leadership Podcast. This is the show for new product leaders seeking to increase their confidence and competence. In every episode, I ask experienced and thoughtful product leaders to share their strategies and tactics that have helped them tackle a tough responsibility of the product leader role. I love helping emerging product leaders shorten their learning curves to expedite their professional success with great products, teams, and stakeholder relationships. I'm your host and CEO of Fearless Product, Hope Curion. Sales and product working well together is critical for any B2B company seeking growth, and that's pretty much all of them. However, incentives and scope of responsibility creates unavoidable friction. For example, sales is focused on net new growth, and product is often balancing growth and customer retention. Sales may be organized by territory or customer segment, but product is balancing the needs of multiple customer segments with varying contributions to top and bottom line revenue. Sales is often buyer-facing, and product has to balance the needs of buyers and users. But one of the most divisive or aligning challenges for a product and sales team to navigate is whether sales should sell features before they exist. This can be a perfectly valid discovery method, or it can wreak havoc on product teams. In this episode, we uncover strategies from five B2B product leaders on how to successfully work with sales to do right by the customer and the company. In this episode, you'll learn how sales can play a key role in testing willingness to pay for a new product concept, how to work with sales in promise management and prioritization, how to align with your sales team in the pre-product market fit phase with understanding and validating unmet needs, and why you should never lie to sales. At the end, I'm going to provide my four recommendations for how to partner with sales in product discovery and development. Fearlessly tackling the question, does your sales team sell features before they exist, are Ben Newell, former VP of Product at Reward Style and Saber, Margaret Jastrzebski, Chief Growth Officer at Table 11, Stefan Radulian, VP of Product and Engineering at Brainloop, a diligent company, Laura Marino, SVP of Product at Lever, and Troy Anderson, SVP of Product and Technology at Spins. First, Ben Newell shares his tips for working with sales during a new product development phase to test pricing and willingness to pay. Obviously, like most questions, the answer is uh, yes and no. But I think we have had a tendency, especially in corporate environments, to kind of really say no on this, you know, that that's a really terrible thing if uh, teams are trying to sell features before they exist. But I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. I have found throughout my career that one of the best ways to validate whether something is worth it or not is to ask someone to pay for it. And we often in products, spend time looking to see if someone would use something that we might give them for free or that we expose through our product in a test and would they use it. But it becomes really challenging to figure out, will they pay for it? And one of the only paths that you really have to be able to to validate that is to use your sales team to your advantage. 
Now, there are a couple things I would say. One is make sure your sales team understands that that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to gauge interest for these things and you're trying to prove whether people will pay for it or not. We had a product that we felt had a lot of valuable data. And that can't be unique in this day and age. Uh, I feel like every product manager has at one point or another said, you know what, if it really comes down to it, we're actually a data company. And so we wanted to put that to the test to see like, yeah, I think this data is valuable and interesting. And if somebody saw our report, they'd go, oh, cool, that's interesting to me. But will they pay for it? To build a solution like that was quite complicated for us. We had to do a whole kind of data warehousing migration and and spend time on that. And before we really got into it, we wanted to validate whether that was true. And so we put out a couple initiatives and products, offerings for our clients that we felt we could execute quite easily, either through manual work and some reporting, but that would be valuable and representative of the final offering that we would provide. Uh, And we asked our teams to go sell it. And we kind of set a threshold and said, all right, if we reach this number, then that means we're actually going to pursue this. That was helpful to set clear criteria about what was enough. It's not just one client we need you to sell it to. We need you to sell it to quite a few. Now, the jury's still out on whether or not it worked for us, but we did find that there was not an overwhelming willingness to pay for it. And in fact, it opened us up to some interesting competitive offerings that we were you know, potentially not aware of. And once we started telling our customers, hey, we offer this, then it started showing up in other areas too. So I think when you look at your sales team, I think talking to them about the fact that you want to validate whether someone will pay for this before you go build it is extremely valuable. So they understand that's what they're doing is gauging interest and not necessarily you know, going out and trying to get you committed to building these things. Uh, But once you have that, there's no better way to determine whether or not someone will pay for it. And just as a follow-up to that, how was the pricing determined in this sort of experimental stage? Like how, like willingness to pay how much? Was that up to the sales team to determine or did you set a minimum? Like how, how did you sort of factor that into this experiment? We left the pricing with the sales team to say, hey, what, uh, you know, what do you think is reasonable to request of your clients based on the other pricing that we're putting in the market and you have a good understanding of that. However, in them setting the pricing, they were also setting how much they would have to sell of it in order for it to pay off in terms of the cost of building it. So I think you know, having a shared understanding that like this is costly So you need to price it aggressively enough such that, you know, we don't have to sell every single client on this in order for it to have a positive ROI. If you think you could sell every client, then great, you can price it inexpensively. But if you think you'd rather sign up for, you know, a tenth of our customers or a quarter of them, uh, then that means you're going to have to sign, it's going to have to be about this much to cover costs. Next market, Jastrzebski shares how she's worked with sales to validate whether there's a market and then how to contract with clients while solutions are still in development. I think the question of does your sales team sell features before they exist is a really, really good one. It's controversial. I'm going to just say it controversial in the product community because of the, I think, inherent danger it might represent. You know, you've got a sales team out in the wild, they might not be might or might not be as connected to the roadmap. They might or might not be connected to the technology, might or might not be as connected to what is in the realm of possibility. And they're out talking to people and ideating and coming up with a lot of concepts. And really, their incentive is to get somebody to sign a contract, not necessarily to 
be happy on the other side of the contract and deliver something full-fledged that really, you know, the opportunities, needs, et cetera. So 100% controversial. I tend, I come from a background of B2B and I come from organizations oftentimes that are still trying to find that product market fit. So in my experience, a lot of times, I actually really welcome sales selling. Um, and I'm going to asterisk that because it does get dangerous and it does get tough. But I find that if you can create a really tight relationship with your sales team, assuming that it's a smaller sales team within reason, within scope, um, if you can create a really tight feedback loop and a really tight relationship with that sales team, it actually becomes an extension of your product market fit research. It actually becomes... They become an arm to you uh, to go and, and test ideas in market and see, like, does this idea resonate? Does this thing fit? Does this thing make sense? Uh, is this thing something that you will actually pay for and sign on the dotted line? Again, especially in B2B, if you're working with the sales team, you're trying to actually generate business and your procurement model is very, very different than what you, what a B2C environment is. B2C, you know, you're a couple clicks away. And it's normally kind of a scale opportunity. B2B, the, the, the order of magnitude tends to be smaller. Each opportunity is larger and the complexity of signing on the dotted line is more. And so you, you have to get a lot of validation in the market. So I, I tend to lean towards being more open with a sales team and really hoping and allowing them to go, you know, and again, it's not my call that they have their own team, but uh, having them go out and talk to partners and talk to opportunities and see, uh, see if the idea that we're contemplating is the thing that resonates with somebody. I say that. And I also think, again, kind of the, the requirement is just to have a really tight feedback loop with them. And I think it's really important to have them be well-educated on your roadmap, them be well-educated on what you're doing, what you're thinking, and then also give them uh, some channels or some, some focus areas. Like here are the themes. There's X, Y, and Z. Can you go help me figure out if this is even something somebody's interested in that they're willing to buy? So I know some of the things that we were looking at with ShopRunner was, you know, ShopRunner, ShopRunner is an amazing company. It's a, it's a marketplace. It's got 150 retailers on one side and millions of consumers on the other. It provides free two-day shipping for everybody that's part of that community and part of that network. ShopRunner also has a really great digital wallet. And so one of the things that I was researching, my team was researching was, hey, can that digital wallet, like, what if we start to expand that digital wallet? And what if we actually create some really interesting digital wallet functionality to where now retailers who don't like to mess with their checkout page can just check a list and say, oh, wait, I can just add Apple Pay. I can just add Chase Pay. I can just add Venmo. It's just that easy. And so that was kind of the hypothesis that we were trying to validate. And I worked really closely. I and my team worked really closely with our sales team to go out and see, like, does this message resonate with people? And it was great. It was great. We got a lot of really great feedback and a lot of really great information um, to help us choose which direction or some of the directions that we wanted to go. So that's, that's how I kind of think about sales. You know, you really, it's, it's a big trust relationship. But I do think that if you think about it as market research, um, then I think you can be really successful in that relationship. Yeah, I, uh, it's interesting because like I think I totally hear you on the, you know, sort of testing the waters on concepts to see if there's a need there and whether it resonates. But mm -hmm. um, the putting a contract in place for something that like there's barely a description of, there's no prototype for, and then all of a sudden like they've got expectations and they're oh, that's not what I thought I was buying. Like that's yeah. what I thought. Like, it's a real, uh -huh. like there's a rule of engagement around that. And it seems like you yeah. structured those relationships well. I probably could talk about that a little bit more than I just did. <laughs> there are some, definitely some creative contracts that I've had to deal with where I'm like, I I have no idea what this is that you just sold. Yeah. But I feel like 
I feel like there is a lot of, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of bitching about that, myself included. I feel like I've bitched about that a lot. And I'm like, I kind of want to also articulate, like, if you can reframe your thinking and have that tight relationship, I think it can be really successful. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. And be part All of right, let me- and be part of the contract signing. I probably should have said that. Like you need to like sign the contract. <laughs> you need to be part of like the vetting of the contract. I mean, that's what Ronnie, Ronnie and I and Danny used mm-hmm. to always do. Like they would like yep. br- they would bring these opportunities, and I was like, okay, this, this, not this, no, not that, <laughs> this, 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 and it worked really, really well because we were yep. able to kind of like zero in really quickly on things. Yeah, I think it's an important point. It's definitely something where I like. I like no product could go into a contract or if there was any editing of the contract, like it was flagged through our contract administration team that like it had to come to us to see if that was yeah. like acceptable in any way, because I, I, we just don't want to set up these mm-hmm. false expectations and set people up for disappointment because there's the short term, woohoo, I signed a contract. And then there's yeah. the months later of dealing with the repercussions of wait, what, what, mm-hmm. what did you think you were getting and who was going to yeah. do this for you? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's an important uh-huh. check and balance. Uh-huh. Hopefully you have a few other people that have answered that question with that. Yeah. Hard. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It's like, well, this part, but this is the reality. Like I want to get a variety of perspectives because it really does depend on the trust and the relationship, frankly, with the sales leadership. Well, and that's what I keep going back to. It's like all about the team. Like, can I have an honest conversation with the head of sales and be like, what the fuck did you just sell? <laughs> and can that yeah. person come back to me and be like, oopsies, you're right. <laughs> like, like, can you have that like really good like back and forth conversation? You know, and then if you can, then you're in a good spot. Next, Stefan Radulian describes the types of sellers you want to partner with when you're developing a new set of features or a new product. And Stefan also shares his practical advice on navigating commitments when sales wants to make a promise of something still in development. Yeah, so so I think so there, there are two types of, of sellers, actually three types of sellers. The ones that just sell the product as it exists. Then there's the second time type is the, the type of sellers that sell features before we built them. So they need product management to commit and promise that this particular feature is going to come at that date and then they can make the deal. Difficult to manage. And then there's a, just a very few sellers that do vision selling. And these are really good sellers. I, I, it, it's still difficult to manage. So they, what they do is they, they sell the product vision to somebody even though the technology is not there yet. And that's... It, it may be even obvious that that technology is not there yet, but they are selling what the product will become in one or two years. And so I like the, 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 the sellers who are selling features that exist today. <laughs> and I like the guys who can sell the vision because that's actually more, uh, that, that's actually very important for product management because that validates the vision. And, and we, we still have uh, the, the time and the, the, the flexibility and we, we can still be creative on how to realize that vision. Yeah. M- most difficult people uh, or mo- most difficult situations to manage is the, the sellers that are selling features two months or three months before we built them. And, but still, we need, we need to manage that because we need the business. We need this particular customer who is uh, pay- paying our bills and, and, and we need to, to find a way to commit and, and, and manage that. And yeah, the, the way we manage it in our backlogs is to make it very visible. So we, we tag particular stories in our backlog and say that was promised to that particular customer or these two customers. And we try to 
plan around these stories and make them unmovable pieces in our backlog, which is not simple. And, and sometimes, sometimes we have to make hard decisions and say, okay, we, we promised that, but we can't keep our promises because for some business reasons, we make more money with another customer <laughs> when we have to promise something else. Yeah. But it's, it's really hard managing that. So I, I, I I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. Do you have any practical, like can anybody promise anything or what are your checks and balances before a promise is made or you commit to it in, in a user story that you yeah. try not to yeah. move? So we, we try to avoid that every seller can sell any feature whenever he thinks uh, he needs it for, for making the deal. So in, in, in our company, it's actually normal to ask product management about that. Uh, can can we promise that to the feature, to the to the customer? And what I I, I try to do is uh, then do the do do the due diligence, uh, analyze, um, refine the story, um, estimate by the the team, get uh, an indication of the costs, and put it into the plan and see what what changes. Uh, how does that impact the plan? And once I have that scenario. Uh, I can then promise uh, that feature, and and I'm very, I'm very precise with my wording when I'm I'm telling when I'm I'm talking to to salespeople. I, I'm I so there are different types of of how I can answer that. I can answer, I commit this. I will do this by that particular date. Then they know that they have a commitment, and they know that we will do really a lot to to stick to that. Uh, or I can tell them. Um, this may come probably, but I don't commit. And I, I'm very exact in, in my wor- wording. I do not commit. I do not promise to deliver that. And if they can still say, uh, they can still tell a customer product management is aware of the problem. They try to find a solution, but it's very vague. But um, that's a different way how to put it. So it's black and white. Either there is a promise or there is not. Yeah. Now, Laura Marino shares why product has to focus on sales and customer retention and shares a helpful story around aligning on customer needs. Yes. So I think that there has to be the right balance. And I think to get to the right balance, the best way to look at it is step back and think about the customer, right? Because at the end of the day, the customer has to become successful. It's not just selling to the customer. It's also making the customer happy after you have sold them. So sometimes sales may be too focused on closing the deal and they don't care about what happens next. But product absolutely cares about both. Product wants more customers, but also wants to make sure that those customers are successful. So if you come in with that mindset, I think that there is a balance. There's a balance where you, as the head of product, can have a conversation with the sales team. If they are saying, we really, really need to be able to promise this functionality because we're seeing that it's so important or this incredible customer really needs it, then you can come in, work with your team and say, could we accommodate this? It might not have been in the roadmap. Do we have any flexibility? Or is it in the roadmap and maybe we can accelerate it a little bit so that by the time this customer really kind of starts deploying, we have it. If you're able to do that, then you're in more control. And at the end of the day, you're in a much better position to actually help sales close the deal, but also make sure that the customer is successful. When things don't work is when you find that sales has already sort of made a promise, the deal is kind of being closed. And now you find out that, oh, but 
you need to do this. And if you cannot accommodate that in the roadmap, because doing it would require not meeting other commitments, then what's going to happen is that you and your customer success team are going to be set for failure with that customer. So you need to start sort of having the conversations with the customer sooner, trying to see how you can convince them that maybe they can wait longer for that functionality. And it's not an ideal place to be. Uh, the worst scenario is when the customer figures out after the fact that they were sold something that didn't exist and then they will churn. And that's really, you never want to be there because it also creates this lack of confidence. And you want, as a company and as a head of product, you really need to have the, to build this trust with uh, the customers. So uh, one example that I had to deal with um, back when uh, I was working for Intap that was focusing on legal industry, we decided to launch a product that was a product that was important for all legal companies. And this product, um, we had big competitors. So we were definitely late to the market, but we were very confident that we understood a lot of what was wrong with the old versions of that product. We had a lot of big customers who really wanted to work with us. So we set out to build this product and the bar was high because we had to get to the minimum functionality that the competitors had and then do it better. So we were building really, really fast and we started getting some of those early adopters who trusted us and said, okay, we will bet on you building the right thing and we will be your customer, but you need to commit that you will be delivering on this thing. So here we were essentially committing on delivering on things that were kind of in the roadmap. Um, but we did that very much jointly with sales and product. And it was painful because yes, we had several of those customers and each one wanted commitments on slightly different things. So it, it really was a lot of work. We were managing things and the customers knew we were kind of not done with those things, but we were committing to delivering them. So it worked out. We actually were very successful at displacing um, the competitors. But I, I tell you, it's not ideal. It's really much nicer when you're kind of selling what's already in the roadmap or what you already have. And what I would say, because I've seen this happen too, sometimes sales get too stuck on trying to sell futures, maybe because a competitor announced something. You need to pull them back on what is great about your product today and why they really need to focus on selling the value of the product today. So that helps kind of the sales team also refocus and avoid this ongoing kind of always selling the future, which is really not a place to be. Finally, Troy Anderson talks about the importance of never lying to sales and keeping everyone aligned around reality. Right. So one of the first things that tends to happen when I come into a new world, not always, but oftentimes, is there are a lot of commitments made on the roadmap, and those commitments were broken. And so one of the things that you really want to do is not do that, right? So you'd rather um, under-promise and over-deliver. And so one of the first things I do in almost every area that I've joined has been to say no and to say no to sales. And that's really an important thing because until you've said no, you really can't say yes. And so you really can't have any priorities and you really can't follow kind of a, a rubric of uh, how do we uh, solve for our hypothesis until you've really said, we've got to clear the decks, right? Until you've cleared the decks, you really don't, unless you do have a very good understanding of, of how your business works, then I'm probably not being joining your team, A. But likewise, you know, the key is 
to, you know, pause, right? What are we solving for? We have to know that first. Likewise, what's broken and what's not broken? What's where are we strong? Where are we weak? You know, all those sort of things. And it's always difficult, right? So obviously, sales is the lifeblood of any company. And if sales isn't telling you, you know, you're, you're out of the job and there's no money coming. Like, how does that work exactly, Troy, that you say no to sales? Well, what I say yes to is we have an existing product that customers have already bought. Otherwise, we don't have much of a business to begin with. And my ask usually is to continue selling what we have and not to sell into the future. Because the thing that I want to do is I want to give certainty about that future whenever I say something. But what I find is that um, companies I join, the roadmap is, is full of uh, broken promises. And that's the last thing you want to do. So the first thing I do typically when I join is I stop that menace. We're not going to deliver on anything we said in the roadmap. And it's extremely unpopular. But I can tell you, salespeople do not want to be lied to. They're, it's just they're on your team. They, they need to know what reality is. And until uh, you can give a proper, grounded sense of reality, it's much, much, much better to pause and not do it. Because otherwise, you're, you're over your seats, right? And as any new uh, person in an organization, you don't exactly know exactly what's going on. So your job is to observe, but also to understand. But once you can get to that point of, of really understanding what you are trying to solve, then you can go back to say, okay, in this quarter, we're going to do this. And directionally, we're going to go there. But yeah, you have to say no at first. I've been fortunate enough to work with thousands of salespeople in my career and have worked with them across hundreds of potential customer needs, promises, features, and products. And over that time, I've learned how to navigate the best ways to understand our customers' unmet needs and present solution concepts to potentially solve those needs. And I've also learned how important it is to leave room and flexibility for product teams to continue to iterate on the solutions to find the ones that work and scale. When working with sales and product teams at companies considering new products to bring to market or new features to solve for customers' needs... I have found that four key things are really critical uh, for the sales leadership and product leadership to work really well together. And so I'm going to break these down into four key recommendations. First, discover together. Are the sales and product teams discovering customers' unmet needs together in interviews, sales calls, demos, and are they accurately capturing them to have a shared point of view for what ultimately will become part of the product roadmap. Second, sell the solved problem, not the features. Several of the leaders shared this perspective in this episode, but working with sales to understand the importance of the solved problem for a customer and their willingness to pay for that solved problem is a critical part of product discovery. And if the customers are willing to pay and are demonstrating that they're actively trying to solve that problem and that they're trying to do it in ways that they're really dissatisfied with, this insight can be a great leading indicator that will help make your future sales much easier. And it also gives us a glimmer into what types of adoption behavior we'll need to see when we are actually delivering a solution to their problem and knowing how the customer will know and prove to themselves that the problem is solved, gives a preview for the product team of what they're going to need to pay attention to and how the product becomes an experience. And that will enable them to set up ways to measure both the happy and non-happy paths of customer adoption. Pilot first, 
then scale sales. Now, for those of you who are uninitiated, I want to spend a couple minutes exposing you to the virtues of a pilot. The magic of a product pilot is that both the sales and product teams experience critically important validation signals through a structured discovery process. If you haven't led a new product pilot, I'm going to include some reference links in the show notes. But here are three key takeaways. First, customers who raise their hands to participate in a pilot are validating for you that they have a problem that they're willing to pay to solve. This is a critical signal for sales and product so they can see which customer segment is raising their hand and how much they're willing to pay. And yet, you can still just be showing them prototypes. Second, the customers are actually benefiting because they will be very influential in the solutions development. But because you are smart and you're going to have multiple pilot customers, possibly representing unique market segments, it will help you avoid building custom software. And then you and your sales team both will have the opportunity to see patterns in which needs and which capabilities of the solution matter most to each customer segment. Third, both the sales and product teams will learn how well your solution actually solves the problem that got them interested in being a pilot customer in the first place. Because the customer is only going to pay you after they've had a chance to use the solution to solve their needs. And if after they've trialed it, they're not raising their hands to continue using it, they're not willing to pay you to continue using it, well, either they're not the right customer or you've got more work to do with your product solution before you put the sales team's quotas and reputations at risk selling a product that really is not ready for prime time. Finally, are you as a product leader and your sales leader co-presenting the roadmap? Whether it be in a quarterly product review or in a board meeting, you should be partnering with your sales leader and co-presenting what you both consider to be worthy of investment and the decisions or product investments that are okay to defer based on your shared goals. Because if you're not co-presenting, odds are you're not aligned on the priorities and not aligned on the path to achieving them. So get aligned with your sales leader on what is both critically important for new customer growth and customer retention. And if you're a product leader feeling out of balance with your sales leadership, I'd love to be of help. Contact me on LinkedIn or Twitter or schedule an initial consultation with me using the contact page at fearless-product.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fearless Product Leadership. If you know a new product leader who would find this podcast helpful, please share it. You can follow me, Hope Gurion, on LinkedIn and Twitter, or subscribe to the Fearless Product Leadership podcast on your favorite podcast platform to be notified of new episodes. You will find transcripts, video versions of each episode, as well as more information on my Fearless Product coaching and consulting services by visiting my website, fearless-product.com. Fearless Product. Confidence through evidence.